Hey, Miles. Remember Hope? Wow, seriously? I, I mean, I, I know it's been a rough year, but... No, 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 no. <laughs> not, not Hope. Hope. You, the person, red hair, involved in complicated shenanigans related to a techno-organic virus. Right, save the world. Yeah, do you remember what happened to her pet monkey? Hope had a pet monkey. Yeah, his name was Chi-Chi. Like in the future? What? No, no, in 1999. Jade, Hope didn't exist in 1999. Yeah, she absolutely did. Uh, I thought she first showed up in 2008. Oh, oh, you're thinking of Hope Summers. Right, red hair, save the world, complicated techno-organic shenanigans. Yeah, no, I was talking about Hope Ling. Hope Ling? You know, from the Warlocks series, technically Esperanza Ling, but she goes by Hope. Oh, man, right. Uh, what was her deal again? I mean, besides the monkey. Let's see. Uh, she was the carrier of a really, really virulent strain of the techno-organic virus. She could infect anyone instantly and actually inorganic matter, too. Yikes. Yeah, uh, actually, she and Warlock ended up at the center of this massive power struggle between groups bent on respectively weaponizing and suppressing the virus, and then Magus showed up. That sounds bad. Oh, it was all kinds of bad. Actually, you know what? Weezy, do you want to handle the details on this one? I mean, you wrote it. Well, it was pretty rough. Magnus didn't just want to kill Warlock this time. He was planning on destroying the Earth. Oh, man. And Magnus managed to infect Warlock with the same virus Warlock and Doug had given Magnus back in the New Mutants 50. Wait, you mean the one that turned him into a baby technarch? Yes! How'd they stop him? They they did stop him, right? Well, they, they must have stopped him. I mean, the universe didn't end until, like... 15 years later? Well, they were able to use Hope's power over the virus and Warlock's unique physiognomy to... Devolve Magus again? Destroy him? Make him part human. What? I'm Jay Adidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 200 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. Jay, this is... We have done 200, well, okay, 199.001 episodes. How did we get here? I... I mean, I read a lot of comics. We both did read a lot of comics. And you know what? Many of those comics were edited or written by an incredible person who we are so excited to have here today. Yeah, I feel a little guilty saying this, but so when we started doing this podcast, we made a, when we started planning it, in fact, we made a list of guests we wanted to get on. And some were obvious, and the number two spot on the list was Chris Claremont. And the number one spot from the beginning has been the same person, um, and that's Louise Simonson, who we are lucky enough to have with us here today in the Imaginary Studio. Um, so, Weezy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That is so sweet. I can't believe you'd rather have me than, I don't know, I'm, I'm, there were so many other people, great people, who've, who worked on the X-Men and New Mutants and all those mutant books. So thanks. I'm honored. But... Well, you had, I think, a broader perspective on them at, at, at really critical times in their development than probably anyone else. You were an editor on the line for a long time before you were writing the series. You've written multiple series. You've revisited the universe a few times. You were a linchpin in some of its first major crossover events, which in turn were, you know, some of the first major crossover events at Marvel. 
there's nobody else who can bring that perspective. Well, that 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 is true. I do have my own perspective, <laughs> such as it is. <laughs> Let's hope I can remember from 30 years back. Anyway, <laughs> here we go. So, yeah, I mean, from editing to writing, as I understand, you started actually editing X-Men with that issue. With Wasn't it like the, the end of the Dark Phoenix Saga? It was the end of the Dark Phoenix Saga. I mean, everybody knows the story of what happened, right? I don't need to tell people again. Of the Dark Phoenix Saga itself, definitely that, unless you have any behind-the-scenes stuff I, there. I, I, you know, I, I don't. I mean, everybody knows, I think, because it's been published everywhere, that, um, mm. oh, dear, uh, Jim Salakrup was the editor. And there was some stuff like, oh, I don't know, Dark Phoenix destroying the, the, the broccoli people. And Jim went in and showed Shooter the the pages and said is this okay and shooter said yeah fine it's great and then shooter saw it in print and blew his top and kind of called me in just to co-edit that that episode of of um the x-men um that was the death of phoenix issue which was you know a big issue to be called in on i i was supposed to take over the x-men anyway later you know, later down the line. Um, but I just, I got called in to, to do it early. I mean, honestly, Jim Salakov had been doing a really fine job before me. And you'd been at Marvel for a while at that point. And was it at Warren before that? I was at Warren before that. Yeah, I was doing black and white horror comics and enjoying it, actually. I think it was really fun. I, I, I was delighted when Shooter invited me to come edit for Marvel though. I mean, I was really, I was very flattered and, and, you know, to be offered any Chris's books, essentially I was offered uh, licensed books and Chris's books. And that was just, honestly, I mean, how can I say no? Right. Right. And I mean, you know, your mark didn't stop there. You then went on to writing with X Factor and New Mutants. You uh, co- you created and wrote Power Pack. You did the Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown miniseries with Walter. You did the... Which is one of our favorites. One of our very favorites. Oh, good. I love that one, too. Can you make can you make them re-release a collected edition of it? We've been trying for years and no one listens to us, but... <laughs> it, seems like, it seems like they release that, uh, some edition of that, that's, that, that series every... Five years or something. It, it just, I, I, it hasn't been a collected edition. No, somehow. Maybe we just can't find it. That's certainly possible. I still have the originals, like those little four uh, sort of fancy versions. Yeah, I, that, those were fun. Oh man, um, those were those were so gorgeous. We actually we 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 dressed up as those versions of the characters at Emerald City Comic Con two years ago. Oh no, seriously? Oh, I would. yeah, we've got pictures. It was it was pretty ridiculous. Oh man. That's pretty amazing, actually. So which of you was Havoc and which was Wolverine? I, I was I was Havoc because it's Yay. easier for it's easy it was easier for Miles to shave his beard than for me to acquire sideburns. <laughs> okay, that sounds reasonable. Yep, so I just had these very, very long sideburns and a wig with very long sort of hair points on it. It was great. Honestly, the art on those books were so good, weren't they? Yeah. I mean Jay and it's I I mean, how did we get so lucky? I mean, Jay Muth has gone on to be a really big time children's book illustrator. And Ken, of course, is Mr. Fine Art now. So I mean it's just wonderful. I mean, we were very, we were very lucky. It was a dream team on the whole book between you and Walter and them. Like, oh, what a combo. 
Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. I thought that was a, a, a really fun project to do. And honestly, when we began researching Chernobyl, what happened really at Chernobyl was scarier than what we did in the book. Yeah, when we did an episode about Meltdown, we actually had a friend of ours who worked in a test nuclear reactor at Reed College out here in Portland to talk about sort of the physics uh, behind what was going on there. And we talked a bit about, you know, what we were able to research on politics in the USSR at the time. And it ended up being this whole, like, grand tour of all these different concepts all coming from Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown. It's actually one of my favorite episodes we've ever done. Oh, yeah, man. We went to- and we realized that our listeners, a lot of our listeners are young enough that we had to actually explain Cold War politics going into it. Oh, which wow. It, it, this feels like a timely point to be to be talking about that and, and the need for that conversation there. Uh, but yes, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. But um, but yeah, so we it ended up being the, the comics and politics and science combination episode. Oh, that sounds wonderful. <laughs> yes. can, can we access these episodes later? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we will. So we, we put up a visual companion to every episode on the website. And when this episode goes up, there will be a link if you go to explainthexmen.com. It says, you know, you can find a visual companion to this episode on, on our blog. And it's got some pictures from whatever comics we talked about, but also links to any episodes or any other material online that's available that we've referenced. So we will absolutely stick, stick a link to that. And also um, a, a, probably a, a bunch of other episodes where we've covered your runs on X-Factor and New Mutants as well. Fabulous, because... I'm going to listen to that one. It sounds really interesting. Well, thank you. That that means a lot uh, coming from you. <laughs> well, you had good material to work with. But I feel like we're um, already sort of uh, digressing. We have all of these different topics to cover. So I, I don't know, Jay, where should we start? I feel like, you know, we talked about introducing things for folks unfamiliar. We've been talking about Wheezy on the show in context of her ex-work. I feel like maybe a brief intro and overview. So, um... Uh, let's see, the, the brief summary in, in terms of X-Men, the stuff you've heard us talk about that she wrote specifically as uh, the original X-Factor, a lot of the original X-Factor series, a lot of the original New Mutant series and X-Factor Forever. There was also a Warlock series that we referenced in the cold open. Um, she also co-created, wrote Power Pack. Um, that was originally with June Brigman, who is currently drawing Mary Worth, which is one of my favorite bits of crossover trivia. And... Um, and, and, and also the Havoc and, uh, Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown. Um, she's done a ton of other work with Marvel and DC, both a lot of Superman. I think that's that's probably what you're best known for at DC. Um, you co-created, actually, one of my favorite characters there, too, is Steel, John Henry Irons. Oh, yay. Um, and the stuff we mentioned before at Warren, that was the old um, magazine-sized creepy and eerie comics, which I believe are currently, are, are not technically in print as comics, but are largely collected in archival editions that you can track down if you're interested. Right. So we touched on it earlier, um, but as far as the perspectives you have coming in uh, to the Marvel Universe, I mean, what was that like going from editing, which you'd been doing, you know, at Warren before, to then starting to write your own stuff for Marvel? Gosh, um, well, I, I started writing because Jim Shooter hired a whole batch of new editors and I it cut my workload in half. And I got kind of bored with just editing. So I thought, well, if I made up something new, I'm not stealing work away from any other writers who are feeding their families <laughs> by writing scripts. <laughs> so I so I made up a book called Power Pack. Um, you know, I, I proposed it to Shooter and he kind of rolled his eyes. You know, poor little kids who were superheroes, you know, he rolled his eyes. And I uh, 
So I he said, well, write it up and maybe we'll get a mini series out of it. So I wrote it up. I wrote up character descriptions and uh, uh, a summary of, of a first plot in, in a lot of detail and uh, summaries of the next four for the mini series that we were supposed to have. And uh, maybe if we were lucky. And then June Brinkman came into my office with these. And she, she I didn't have any anything to give her as an editor, but I found out she could draw kids. And I, I handed her the, the um, description of the kids and the whole little packet that I'd made up. And I said, so draw, draw the kids. And if they seem right, well, then I'll propose us as a team. So they came, June came in with these wonderful little drawings of, of all of the kids. I think my favorite one, gee, I don't know, it's a turn. It's a, it's a toss-up between Katie and Jack. Jack was standing there with our, our bad boy, was standing there with a, his baseball cap on backwards and his arms folded and a pouty look in his face. Um, <laughs> I guess Jack was my favorite as far as the, the, the drawings go. And what happened was I, I, they were wonderful. So I, I, I t- put the, her stuff in with the packet and I took it into Shooter and Shooter you know, read it over the next day or two. I mean, really, really quickly. And he came back to me and he said, okay, this is now a series. It is not a mini series anymore. It is a series. And the first issue is due in two months. And I'd never written a comic and June had never drawn a comic. (laughs) But we were, I know, but we were, uh, we had a series. So, and honestly, because of June's drawings, I think the kids became even more themselves like, you know, that pouty little Jack, it just, the drawings just kind of, it so embodied the kids, it threw so much more emotion into their, just with their stances and gestures that, um, you know, they, they were, I was there again, I was very lucky and my artist. I mean, you, it's just, the kids were so natural. It was, it was, it was, it was a really, a really, really nice um introduction to doing comic or to actually writing comics for me. Yeah. One of the things that's really incredible and really sticks out to me, at least about the early power pack art is I feel like a lot of, a lot of comics artists and especially a lot of superhero artists have kind of a set human face and figure default that they go to. And that can make kids look really bizarre in kind of miniature adult medieval art ways. Sure. And the power pack kids look like kids, but they also move like kids and they have kids' facial expressions, which, and it, it they, and that gives that book so much verisimilitude. And kids' gestures and kids' attitude. And I don't know. I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, June is just terrific. And Bob Wyatt was the anchor on that book, and he did a really nice job. His, his inking was very, it was delicate and just perfect. I mean, I was, I was very lucky on that book. And I mean, you've worked with uh, some phenomenal artists talking about the body language thing. For me, I always go back to um, Brett Blevins, who we had the pleasure to to get to know a little bit at uh, in Seattle uh, this year. And there's one panel in particular of the run that you two did, where I think the characters are at their computers taking tests with the pencil. Oh yeah, I love that. It's just one of it's one of my favorite little things. Even as a kid, when I I didn't know anything about comics craft at all, I was just paging through these, being excited to see what happened. And that panel just jumped out at me like, oh oh, people do that. People do that when they're bored or when they're frustrated. It was great. I know. And that was, you know, that was one of Brett's specialties is that he drew gesture and emotion. I mean, when I, when I write plots, I kind of tailor them to what the 
artist wants, what they need. I mean, with Walter applied, I mean, because we were working in this very bizarre fashion on, on X Factor, I would give him a plot that was mostly the action. He didn't want to know what people were thinking or feeling. He wanted to know the choreography. Um, and then, because, then he, what he would do is he'd give me, well, scribbles, essentially. I mean, they were thumbnails, but sometimes you couldn't tell him what was the human, what was the helicopter, <laughs> because they were very rough, but mostly you could tell. And I would write my script from his scribbles. And then he would, at that point, be able to put expressions on people's faces and gestures and things. Um, so, I mean, that's how we worked with Brett, because we were working, you know, in the usual Marvel style way. Brett wanted to know what people were saying and how they were feeling. And, you know, it, I mean, it didn't take much. He, Brett is a really, really smart artist. And it took very little to get, you know, the like my concept of how a kid was feeling, um, a, a new mutant was feeling across to him. And then Brett would just take it and run with it. I mean, you know, that little gesture with the with, with Ileana balancing the, the pencil between her nose and her lip. Um, Brett was, he always, he, Brett once said to me, I try to draw them so they look like they're thinking something. And he yes. always did. You can tell everybody is thinking and feeling and in and, and, and their own emotion as they would in a with a different gesture. I mean, they were really little little renditions of little humans, real little people to him. And I think that's really why it works so well. You know, I'm very I have been very lucky. That's honestly one of the things that for me is important in story. And probably it's the soap opera aspect of you know, of, of, of the comics that I love that, um, you know, and it, it is conveyed, conveyed by gesture and an expression and, you know, it, it, what it does is it makes it very easy to write the dialogue because you don't have to have a character say something. Oh, gee, I'm sad. No, you look at that person, you know how they're feeling. So you can, it, it, it keeps, it keeps, I suppose, you know, that kind of just basically informational dialogue at a minimum because the pictures are telling you what you need to know. So you started out writing with Power Pack. These were characters in a series you'd created with the two that we've talked about most here. And I think two of the ones at Marvel that you're best known for, New Mutants and X Factor, you were coming on to established books, one that had only been around for a few issues and the other of which had had, had a fairly long time to establish its tone. What were those transitions like? Well, um, X Factor, I, I, I didn't agree with the, I guess the, the, just the whole premise of X Factor. You know, I was annoyed at them because my, my pal Chris had had his characters ripped away from him, first of all. And of you know to to, to cre recreate the original X Men in the X Factor book, um, and I came into it I think with issue six if I'm remembering right, um, mm -hmm. and I I didn't I didn't like the premise. Um, we we had were there were a lot of constraints because Chris was absolutely pissed off and and validly so that you know his characters had been 
manipulated in ways that he had nothing to do with. And he really loves these characters or loved these characters. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I, I maybe took it with a little bit of ambivalence, but because I loved the characters too, I sort of wanted to, to fix them. <laughs> this is this is a horrible way, reason to do any series. No one should ever, ever, ever do a take on a series because they want to fix stuff. <laughs> but I, I think I did really. Um, I wanted to to kind of put things so that you know Chris, so that in, in a way, Psych went back to kind of being the straight arrow he had been, um, and that you know he should he should honestly have told Gene. They should all have told Gene what was going on. Ye gods. You know, I don't know. I was just, I was, I was, I was perturbed. And, um, and honestly, I, I, I was partly, I, I think I was partly given the series because Chris and Anne had asked for me on it or, or somehow I, I had been, they, they had wanted me to do it, but, and I think that made a big difference, but also, um, I, I had been asked to do, uh, I guess a fill-in issue because it looked like Bob Layton was going to be, late turning something in. They said, we'll do a fill-in. So I wrote a fill-in and I threw into the fill-in all my soap opera things where about how all the characters were feeling because that's what I do. And, um, you know, so that, so that, you know, Scott was torn up. He was up on the roof blasting stuff just because he was so pissed off. And I don't know, other stuff was, I whatever, I threw into that 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 mix. Um, Bob Layton did come on and finish that issue, which it would have been number five. But then they asked me to do it after that, after take over the series after that. So um, I was able to actually use some of that material in later um, episodes that would have, you know, that, that, that I hoped began to kind of make things make sense. The fact that Scott would go off and leave his wife and child and just not even check back with them. I know that was, that was editorially mandated in a way because Chris didn't want, he didn't want Madeline and, and the baby whom he owned and this is owned in quotes, but that's, you know, you feel like that, like whom he created to have, anything to do with the, 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 the series that he was mad at because they had disrupted his entire existence. So, um, so when we, you know, we spent some time trying to make things make sense again. Yeah. And, and the way you handled that, I think as, as a reader, I always especially appreciate it because I think a lot of writers when they're, they're brought on and they want to sort of quote, fix a book, all of a sudden from one issue to the next, everything is totally different. The characters are behaving totally differently. The plot changes immediately. And with your early X factor picking up from Bob Layton's writing, it's a gradual transition, taking them from the whole dual identity team and the characters not telling Gene what's going on to where they ended up, you know, ultimately as characters who were more honest with each other and this team that almost, that, that became sort of the, the public face of mutant kind in a way. And it all feels just very organic and gradual. And so it feels like the early issues, the, the first issues, they count. And yours doesn't, doesn't, you know, mess with what they were doing. It just shifts it in a way that feels natural. Which, well, and grounds it, sorry, and grounds it back more in the X-Men comics that it had grown out of. Oh, well, well, good. I'm glad, I'm glad you, 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 you felt that way about it. I don't think it's fair to the readers or honestly to Bob Layton or, and, 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 you know, the people who actually love those first issues to just, you can't just, well, you can't just toss them out. We've seen things tossed out constantly these days, but I would never do that. Um, You know, if I didn't like something, I'd be likelier to just not, just ignore it and move on. Um, but in this case, I couldn't just 
ignore stuff. I didn't think, you know, the characters were, I, I just felt that the characters needed to behave in a more realistic fashion for their, <laughs> for the way that they had been. And the transition was certainly, um, I'm, I'm glad it seems smooth to you. So I have another question actually about that transition and about a lot of the collaboration and politics of that. I'm thinking of this as someone who comes from a comics editorial background and just how much of that job is the delicate politics of negotiating between company and creator needs and getting books out on time and, you know, working with inevitably in comics because it's such a small industry, friends and people you're close to and and all of that. And I can't imagine what a delicate balance that must have been to maintain during that transition. You know, that's I, I you know, I don't I don't remember it being particularly difficult, but it's been a long time and the tapes may have erased. Um, I I know that one of the things that because Chris is a friend of mine and I really I I just think it was a rotten thing to do to him, but then you know you get you get to, 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 to disrupt his series like that. But on the other hand, you know, Jim Shooter, as the editor-in-chief, his job is to sell comic books. And he certainly came up with an idea that sells more comic books. So, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, I, I, you know, I, 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 you know, I guess it, it was not, it didn't seem terribly fraught. I think that from the very, from the minute that I came on, it was fairly clear that Chris and I would, work together to try to make things make sense. That's actually, that leads to something that, that we wanted to ask about and talk about. There was so much close collaboration going on in the X offices, but also in, in it seemed like that whole corner of Marvel in general during that era. And so much, so much just sort of cross pollination between different titles and different folks working on that. Can you speak a little bit to sort of what that was like to folks who are mostly used to an, an age of, of big summer events and creative and annual creative summits? Well, I, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly what you're interested in knowing. Um, it was okay, it was a time when it was really comics were really creator creation from the ground up. Like you know, you back in the olden olden days, um, a, a writer, a team, essentially, you know, writer and artist and inker and whatever, was where they were handed a book by the editor and told to do it do it to the best of their abilities. And, you know, if the editor was unhappy, then, you know, they would fire you and get somebody else to do it. But until then, you really had a, a huge amount of creative freedom. Um, so, and and within the context, I mean, Chris and I were used to collaborating on things because I had edited his his X-Men and New Mutants for so long. And, and you know, and Anne was, you know, Bob Harris was great. Our, Anne was great. So, you know, we really, it, wasn't it wasn't like it was a difficult thing I think that the collaboration that we did you know it was just natural it was organic really and I don't think we thought of it as as being any kind of a big deal I think we were just trying to have fun and make good comics and having fun was really part of it and I think that fun really does show through in a lot of the product. Like you just the level of writer and artist and editor and everybody investment just really comes through in that era. For me, my favorite era of comics is right around then, like right around the 1980s. And I think that's a big part of why. Oh, good. I'm glad you had fun because we sure did. So going back a little bit, we were talking a bit about X Factor and the transition. Um, and I was hoping we could look at some of the, the particulars of it. So 
some of the elements that ended up being central parts of your run were things that started in those issues before you took over. So as we were wondering as far as, for instance, Cameron Hodge, who starts off being, you know, the sort of straight-laced, almost co-founder of the team and ends up being one of the more maniacal, terrifying villains in comic book (laughs) history. And one of the longest-lasting. One of the, well, yeah, you know, demons and cyborgs and all sorts of it. But was that something that you were envisioning from early on or were plot elements like that ones that just sort of grew organically? Well, I looked at what Hodge was doing and I thought, this man is not does not have the humanity in mind, the best for humanity in mind. I just, I, and I asked myself, well, why would he, why would he behave this? I mean, he seemed to kind of have Warren under his thumb or he was very influential to, to, to Warren, who was, you know, Archangel eventually, um, Angel. And um, I, I just, you know, but for me, a character is why. So I looked at Cameron Hodge and I would say, why would he do that? Why would he make such a ridiculous suggestion? And then I thought, hmm, well, it could be because he's playing his own game. And that was kind of where that came from. You know, I thought that his in, in his the, his attitudes in his original Inception were they seemed malevolent to me rather than benign, and so that's how I played it. But I, you know, for all I know, that's what Leighton would have done in the end. I don't know, you know, I I have no way of knowing. But that's the way I read it when I when I read it. That's what it felt like to me. Yeah, and that gradual increase in villainy until we get, you know, the Hodge we see, for instance, in the Extinction Agenda, where I always come back to the the best Hodge. <laughs> yeah, I think it was a was it John Bogdanov that did the image of Hodge with sort of the cardboard human suit body hanging from his neck in in that arc. I think. Yes, I believe it was. Yes, it's very very much John. <laughs> oh, it was wonder. It was just so ghoulish. I know. I know. Well, and he's, he's always been one of those villains who's so over the top, he teeters almost into Goofy, and somehow that makes him even yeah. scarier. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I, I think I think you, you, pre- you pretty much nailed it. Yeah. He, he, I always had envisioned him as, and, and, and that gradual slide toward where, where we see more and more what he really is. It was, uh, I, it was fun. I, I, I thought he was actually kind of a fun villain. I'm glad you liked him. Speaking oh, of much. yeah, speaking of villains, I feel like we can't talk about this without talking about Apocalypse. Oh, Apocalypse! Yeah, he was. He, now, now that was a fun villain. He had a uh, from from the very beginning for me. He had an agenda, and that and again again a why, and that was important. I didn't totally reveal all of his why until actually I guess it was the. Um, Oh, dear. X-Factor Forever miniseries that I did. Right. Yeah, we were going to ask about that because the direction he goes in that, like, it just brings everything you wrote about him together in this nice little package and makes the reader really question, like, is the way I've been looking at Apocalypse appropriate? Does it make sense? Now there's there's all of this context I wasn't aware of. Which is eventually probably, I mean, I would have gotten to it eventually um, if I had I continued in the series. So I was very, very lucky that I was allowed to do an X Factor forever and kind of at least put it out there the way I saw Apocalypse. 
And so is the way you saw him, were, were those things that were kind of in your head from the start? Like, as I understand it, the original role of the head of the Alliance of Evil uh, under Bob Layton was going to be the owl. And so, you know, going from a villain like that to a villain who turned into someone well, so apocalyptic, that, that just always blows me away. Yeah, well, you know, it, I mean, the owl hadn't made much of an appearance. I think he was supposed to just, you know, show up as a maybe a silhouette in issue number five. When and I, they knew I was going to take it over, and I really had didn't have any interest in doing the owl. I mean, you know, it just wasn't my thing. And uh, I really wanted to do Apocalypse, and I said, "Can we do Apocalypse instead?" And they said, "Sure." But then he had to be designed very quickly, and I guess he was um, he was kind of rough. The design for him was rough in the beginning, but it tightened up yeah, nicely. Oh, it tightened up beautifully. Just that that design, and that was um that was one of Walter's design, or was that one of Jackson Geis's design? Jackson Geis. Walter put him on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a really shapeshifter. He can, he can, you know, if you if you figure he can he can change shape, he can become whatever. So steroids and works. <laughs> And the effect he had on the team, I mean, especially where he was, I mean, he was revealed at first, but I feel like where Apocalypse really became a big deal was when we found out what he had done to Warren in the creation of Archangel, because well, that's just Speaking not, of character designs. Yeah, speaking of amazing character designs, I love Archangel's design. I love it, too. Um, it, was, it was awesome. Walter did, Walter did really good on that one. We always describe Archangel's design as one that shouldn't work, and yet seeing Walter Simonson draw him, he's just one of the coolest-looking characters in all of comics. No, I thought he looked really cool, and somehow those those wings that were that were really knives, where the feathers were just ching, you know, and the knives would fly. It was just I don't know. I I was very pleased with the way he turned out. And, oh yeah. And the idea, of course, was to bring him up to the level of an 80s character he was still he had 60s powers as angel you know he could fly fast you know and he had wings big deal well not a big deal in the 60s but in the 80s it's like yeah okay every can everybody can fly so um or many people can anyway so you know i kind of wanted to make him more i wanted to change i guess he was always such a sunny character and he had this great life and it just, it's more fun for me to torture a character and see what they're really made of. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> it worked so well. I mean, Archangel, when I was a kid, Archangel was one of my favorites, I think, for that reason, because there was just so much internal conflict. There was so much going on I there. know, poor tortured guy. He'd had this great life, and then all of a sudden, he was just tortured. Ah, oh, poor fella. I loved him. <laughs> So speaking of, of both Archangel and Apocalypse, we've had a couple listeners who um, who mentioned yeah, there have been those those characters have both made their way recently into the X Men cinematic universe, and there have been a couple other adaptations involving them before. What do you think of those, and and have you been involved in or consulted in them in any way? Not involved at all. Um, I love the way Archangel looked. He really in, in X Men Apocalypse, he wasn't much of a character other than just a visual. You know, he didn't do a lot, which was too bad. But, um, and I don't know if there was any indication that he had been Angel at all in that. You know, maybe eventually something would have been done with it. Um, I, I was un, a little unhappy with the approach the movie took to Apocalypse because mm -hmm. 
you know, and, and I didn't, I didn't love the design. You know, the design actually wasn't so terrible, um, but he was just too small. Apocalypse is massive. Yeah. And I would have, I, you know, I wish that they had done something, you know, CGI'd him up or whatever to, to make him bigger, bigger looking. I, I, so I was disappointed in, in, in that he was just, you know, normal human size. And, um, but what really disappointed me was his motivation. In for me, apocalypse is he he's this 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 fellow, this this mutant who has spent his entire extremely long existence trying to make make to create mutants and like himself and to make them them strong and fierce and able to withstand the worst that's going to come, which he's aware of. He's aware that in my, as I revealed in X Factor Forever, which is, you know, a long, the, the, he had an experience with the Celestials when he was young, young for a, a, a mutant who lives forever. And um, he was so disturbed by this that he, he realized that the Celestials would come back and judge humanity again, and they had to be able to withstand them. And his, his motivation is to create to, to create mutanthood, essentially, um, and, and to create stronger and stronger and stronger versions of people so that when the, the, the Celestials do come back, that they'll be able to just, you know, at least fight them off. So that was my, my idea. Um, and so that when, when the, 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 new mutant, when the mutants, the X-Factor, X-Men, attack, defeat him, Apocalypse, he wins. He, and that that mm-hmm. was totally missing out of the movie. When he, when he was for, first of all, his motivation was just conquer the world, blah blah. Which is, you know, it, it was a means for, for in my books when he did this kind of thing when he created wars. It was a means to an end, where just to make people stronger, to kill off the weak, so the strong will survive and reproduce and create stronger people who will they, for which he'll then create another scenario of destruction. And the weak of we, and only the strongest of that group will survive in his, in his, his his own personal philosophy of creating uh, <laughs> creating a strong human race. Um, that that really that just went away for the movie at all. I mean, he just wanted to you know be the be a world conqueror, or rule the world, or whatever. And that's not really was never really from my perspective, never his thing at all. So I was I was disappointed in that. You know, I'm hoping that Marvel gets the rights to the mutants back and that they then create Marvel mutant movies. I think that Marvel, the Marvel movies are, are really, they're good and they're true to the characters. Yeah, by and large, they've been amazing. I mean, especially God Black Panther yeah. just blew oh me God. away. That one was. I know, I know. They're, I, I just think they're getting better and better. They're, I think they're getting better at it, at, at understanding you know, what works and what doesn't and how to adapt stuff semi-faithfully. But, you know, they, they keep the feel of the characters. Yeah, they're true to the spirit, even if the details are altered because it's a different medium. And that's that's huge. Yes. Yes. So going back to something you just mentioned, you were talking about the role of the Celestials in Apocalypse's origins and his plans. And that just takes me to one of my favorite stories you did that it always blows me away that this isn't like one of the more uh, commonly talked about X-Men stories out there, but The Judgment War, that story you did with, I believe, Paul Smith set in the world that the Celestials were preparing to judge. That one, 
that one was really it was fun. Paul Smith is isn't he great? I don't know. He, he's such a great storyteller. Um, you know, the, the, for me that it, that one really it worked. I think it went on too long. Honestly, I think that you know, as an editor, if I had been the editor of that book instead of the writer, because writers and editors have completely different agendas, <laughs> I probably would have said, you know maybe four issues maximum, which I, and I couldn't have done anything long and um, involved as I did uh, with at that, in that way, unless I, you know, I broke it into several segments and I would have cut back to earth a lot more. I can't believe they let me just wander off into space and have, you know, almost it was like nine months of just space adventure. That's crazy. I did really love getting a chance to just sort of sink into that world, though, because it was such a, a compelling and well-realized world, like all the all the natives to the world, uh, Perfect Sierra and all those other characters. It was just cool to just take a vacation to, you know, space with these characters we love, discovering all these new cultures and concepts. And to see them out of their element, because they, uh, more than any of the other teams at that point, was were really, really grounded not only in Earth, but in, you know, human society and their environment. I'm really happy and quite thrilled that you enjoyed, you know, that that segment. I I was afraid I had, through not any fault of Paul's at all, totally, you know, done something that was a little bit boring. Not to me, but I was afraid maybe I had bored my readers. So it does please me immensely to know that you liked it. You've also given us one of our worst ongoing running jokes on the podcast, which is uh, the imaginary. We, we decided ZZ 105 should be um, a radio station. <laughs> yes, it should. Absolutely. Just sort of kept going. <laughs> Yep, Jay's got his ZZ105 voice he'll occasionally throw in there. (laughs) Bringing you 75 hours of ambient piano music and soft jazz reinterpretation of these classic songs commercial-free on ZZ105. Perfect, totally perfect. (laughs) Excellent. Louise Simonson approved. I love it. Absolutely. We're talking about X Factor and stuff that changes, and a huge tipping point on the series for both of us and in our discussion of it was when there started to be more central characters than just the original five X-Men, when the, the kids started showing up and becoming part of the cast and becoming the group that then became the Exterminators during Inferno. Yeah. Cool. And I mean, you know, from Rusty and Skids and Richter and Boob and Artie and Leash and Taki, that was definitely one of my favorite parts of the books. And I'm sure part of it was just that when I was reading those comics, I was younger myself. And so it was a great entry point. But the character that we've really centered in on on the podcast as we've been, you know, Look, looking at these books more closely, I think is Boom Boom, yes. you know, who showed up in yes. Secret Wars 2 and then Fallen Angels and then became a bigger and bigger uh, part of both Rex Factor and then your New Mutants run. What made you choose Boom Boom, this character who'd been created in these totally other stories? What made you want to bring her in? Well, I tell you what, this is, this is, this is like background info. Jim Shooter came to me and Chris and he said, okay, there are two characters that you will be required to incorporate in your books really there's das yeah i swear to god there's dazzler and there's boom boom and i wanted boom boom and chris wanted dazzler so that's how that happened that's amazing i had no idea i'd never heard that story before but it worked out so well it did it it was good for both of us well and if you're gonna adopt a character from secret from secret war 2 at least you get the one who already knows how to poop oh man (laughs) (laughs) that old plot point god um but yeah, and so then we see those characters, including our very favorite Boom Boom, um, moving from. Yeah, I loved her honestly. To... Oh, oh, she's also, so great. Also, Jubilee. At one point, Chris said, "This is like years later. I don't know. It was you know, 
toward the end of my time there. I think Chris had said that he wanted he wanted Boom Boom for some reason. He wanted so he said, "Well, I'll trade you." Maybe Dasser for Boom. I don't even remember who was going to trade. And I said, no, I'm not trading Boom Boom. I want her. Like, 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 like she's a playing card, right? And I, I said, Chris, don't, you don't need to take Boom Boom. Just make up your own. So he came up with Jubilee, who's another great character. Yeah. No, I still remember them meeting in the uh, Extinction Agenda for the first time and like just seeing sort of the similarities in each other and just not being able to stand each other. It was one of my favorite little moments <laughs> okay, there. Good. So there, so you see, so it, it really worked out well that I, I wouldn't trade her away. She was one of my favorites, too, even if I didn't make her up. <laughs> oh, she was great. But yeah, so her and all the other kids, over the course of Inferno becoming the Exterminators, they ended up kind of switching trains from uh, X-Factor to eventually joining up with the New Mutants. Was that something you'd been planning for a while, to get all the younger characters in one book? Or no, how did how did that I, go? Not really. I, you know, it... I think you, it is possible that people who look at these things attribute more planning to us than we actually had. I mean, <laughs> Fair. I mean, honestly, with Inferno and Mutant Massacre, we, there was a lot of planning involved. Um, but but the other stuff, you know, incorporating characters and the transition from one team to another, it, it, we did, at least I did, and I'm, I know Chris did too, you know, what seemed organic. What makes sense, you know, as you, you're, you know, you're going on and living your life and things happen and you react to them and, you know, it creates other paths. And you know, that's kind of how we, that's how we played it. <laughs> it worked out well and it, it felt right, especially if you were following both of those books, like, like I was and realizing that, oh, these characters I've been seeing in this, in this world, interacting with uh, the mutant kind in this way. Now I get to follow them elsewhere. Now I can see them bounce off some of my other favorite characters, like, Seeing some of those dynamics was fun, especially, I think, uh, Cannonball and Boom Boom. That was just a wonderfully, like, contentious and eventually slightly romantic and yes. more romantic relationship. And just seeing that develop is I so know. cool. I, it's the soap opera aspect again, which is, honestly, I think what the soap opera stuff interests me more than the fighting aspect of these comics. I'm ashamed to say. I shouldn't be telling you this. This is, but um, it, it's... You know, it, it, the, it's the, there again, it's the why. It's the, um, the, the character interaction and the emotions behind it, how they feel about things um, that, that really matter to me in a story more than, you know, the, 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 the physical conflict for me has to externalize a, a, an internal or an interpersonal conflict. And that's sort of, I guess, how we... How we did it both in the, I don't know, in, 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 in the interactions and the stories, the conflicts and the resolutions within the stories themselves. That's that's one of the things that we've talked about. I mean, that, that brought us to X-Men in the beginning. We've talked about it for a long time as sort of our favorite soap opera. Um, but so I have a question about that. I, I, I feel like every reader has... The, the relationships and arcs that are kind of their stories, that are the things that they latch onto as, as the characters, as the dynamics, as the, the moments of sort of climactic drama. What are the ones that you were excited about exploring and had the most fun writing? Oh, Lord. Um, you know, it was usually whatever one I had to be writing at the moment, um, whoever I was torturing the most. I loved the angel arc, the archangel arc. I love that whole apocalypse um, thing. I... Uh, creation um, in New Mutants. Golly, I liked. I loved the poor dead Doug story. 
Yeah. Oh man. I um. So when we when we covered that episode on our show, for us, it's one of the most effectively sad issues in comics, and it's also got that great creepy cover. Thank you. I love that cover. The the Doug one that was it wasn't the, wasn't the one where Doug died that we did that was the saddest one. No. It was, no, it was the, the one, one where Warlock, Warlock tried to bring him back that we paired with like the happy picture book masquerade party story just so that we could. Yeah. <laughs> it would be too sad otherwise for the episode. So we got this like like kids picture book of the X-Men at a Halloween party. It was great. Oh, oh, that's brilliant. Um, yeah. I, you know, it's, it, it, there again, it's the why. And the, I, I felt like the character of Warlock who, I mean, they, they ran out of energy but they don't die and they're able to sort of move their, to transition themselves through the transmode virus into other beings and other settings and other, you know, they, they can become. And I felt like he really wouldn't have understood about Doug being dead. And honestly, I think Doug had the transmode virus. I mean, there's no reason why Doug wasn't able to come back. I don't know why he wasn't. Just everybody hated him. Well, he did eventually. It just took a very, very long time. It took forever, you know, which actually I was sort of mm-hmm. surprised by. Um, you know, I, I, I might even have brought him back myself eventually. Although, although like you said, the the the, uh, the right the readers hated him, and the artists thought he was boring. And honest, and when you wrote a Doug story, or any of the the New Mutant stories at that point, you had to include something for him to do. So you need his ability was to translate languages. Yeah, I feel like he's this incredibly practically powered, super powered character who had the bad luck to be born into a superhero universe. I know, I know he would have done so well as a tech guy or something, wouldn't he? But oh, yeah. <laughs> probably maybe he would have was he when he grew up. And honestly, I probably I didn't have to kill him, but it was more fun. And and it made for a great story and some great evolution for all the other characters. I think Wolfsbane especially, some of her reactions to that just rung you know, so I, true. I'm glad that you liked it. I I got... Uh, people were not happy with me for having killed Doug to begin with. And there, there seemed to be a huge gamut of... I, I, of, of, I get not understanding, but I guess reaction to the story where Doug is car- where Warlock is carrying around Doug's corpse trying to convince him to come back to life um, it so that I you know I had everything from what are you you're a crazy person letters to most not too many of those honestly to you know stories from kids who said my brother died and that was how it was oh man so it was, I felt better about it, honestly. I, I, I felt that at least for some people the story accomplished what I had wanted to. I, I, I totally agree. And I think having those darker elements in New Mutants was part of what made the book work so well. I mean, yes, it's about kids. And so maybe the audience is a little bit younger, but kids go through hard things. And I think seeing some of those hard things on the page and these characters that and seeing characters that they identify with having to deal with them, even if it's a little bit more of a loftier version of the real life stuff, that can be really cathartic for kids. It can help them process stuff. Yeah, it's what, this is what one of the letters that I got said, which I really appreciated. It was, it was a great letter. The way that X-Men and X-Books resonates with readers is something that I think has been always been really notable for me, going back and, and reading through the early, even the earliest of the letter columns. Um, and, you know, you've talked a lot about readers' responses to Doug in particular, but were there any responses that really were surprising to you just 
the stuff that you'd written or worked on or particularly positive or just re- have stuck with you? Well, I mean, the Archangel, the response to Archangel was like, it, it, it ran the, it was, it was first, how could you do this to him? Oh my God, you, you, you monster to, oh yeah, he, he's cool. <laughs> so that, that transition of reaction was actually kind of fun. Um, but, you know, it mostly, gee, back in the olden days, you know, you would get letters from, you know, you'd get a lot of letters and some of them would be great and some of them would be not. I mean, some of, one of my favorite letters was a letter to Power Pack where a physicist explained why something I had done in the comic actually would work. The man deserved it. He deserved a no prize. It was it was a baseball story. When, back in, in the olden days with Power Pack, um, whenever we had to throw in a fill-in, because it was, group books are very hard to do and, you know, June hadn't been... She'd never done a whole series of comics like that before. And every once in a while, she would need a break to catch up. So uh, every time we did a fill-in, fill we would, usually with Brent Anderson, we would pick one of Carl Potts's my editor's hobbies, and focus on that. So we did baseball. We, we, we did a, a marina and, and uh, submariner-type story uh, that took place at the aquarium because Carl loves fish. And then we did a baseball story. In which the kids, because there was a there was a there was a bomb in the stadium that was going to go off if a certain character hit his home run that would you know it would he would have won a championship and he would be lauded and praised but they were going to blow somebody they were going to blow up the stadium so the kids had to actually take away first they had to take away his home run um, use their powers to take away his home run to knock the ball aside or whatever so that he couldn't get it but then they felt bad because he deserved it so then they had to give it back to him and use their powers to give him the ball run back to him so that was that was it was first of all based on Carl's hobby which was baseball and um you know and this physicist wrote and explained to me how if they moved a certain period and hit the ball at a certain angle it would really would have worked he said you know they could have done it and I, I was just wow. I was just so thrilled, first of all, that a physicist would actually be reading Power Pack and then take the time to write me and explain how it would work. That he took the you know, Aaron, I, I was just I was thrilled with that letter. Oh man, all of the little unexpected delights of creating things that you just would never have expected to happen, but they do, and it just uh, oh, I love it. I know it's it's the interactions. It's part of comics or any kind of creative endeavor, I guess. If you're one of the creator people, is that you you write stuff and or you draw stuff and you put it out there, but that's only half of the the interaction, half of the story. The other half is what the reader brings to it and their interaction with it, and you aren't you don't always know what their interactions are, but when you get a letter or you meet somebody at a convention and they tell you a story about their interaction with a particular story that you wrote or, you know, did, it was, it's always, and and it was a a really positive interaction. You're always so thrilled. It's like you've, you had a really interaction with the, with a person, even though it was at, you know, with with an interposition of story between it, you feel like you've actually made a connection with a human and it's really a thrill. And those oh, connections yeah. are still very much happening. I feel like I should throw in, uh, we found out yesterday that one of our listeners has actually recently started a podcast about the Power Pack. Yay! 
all right. Well, I will. If they want me to talk to them, I'll be glad to. Um, that's really that's really thrilling. To I, I always loved Power Pack. Um, you know, it's probably my favorite comic just because it was the first one I did, the one I made up myself. So, um, you know, I, I, I keep maybe hope I keep sort of, I can't tell if I'm hoping they make a movie of it or I hope they don't because <laughs> if they don't do it right, then I'll be disappointed. But, um, you know, whatever you, you have no control over that stuff. I would always want to see a, I think like a Saturday morning cartoon version of the power pack that was done for maybe not, maybe a slightly older audience could work really well. So still animated, but like letting some of the darker themes from it in just cause like that's part of childhood. I think I, and that's what I would love to see anyway. I think that would be great. I would love to see that too. You know, we'll see what happens probably, you know, maybe, maybe nothing will, or maybe something will. I mean, they did make that little power pack TV show, a pilot from some, some firm in Canada made it a long time ago. And I thought the kids in that were pretty cute. I didn't care much for the script. And there were things that technically they couldn't do back in the olden days. But, um, you know, I thought it was kind of cool that somebody actually tried anyway. Yeah. Um, well, okay, going back to New Mutants, as much as I, I love talking about Power Pack, I guess we, we're an X-Men podcast, so technically. I know, this is not, this is, this is the X-Men, people. <laughs> they did cross over a lot. They crossed over a lot. They crossed over a lot and in and, and very dark, stories sometimes too oh, so. some of the best wounded wolf the one where katie was in there with wolverine oh so yes. good um but talking about transition so we were talking about cypher earlier about his death and i mean between that and warlock dying in the extinction agenda iliana sacrificing herself in inferno mirage staying in asgard and then the kids from x-factor joining up like new mutants was a book that under your under your tenure really shifted its cast a, a great deal and I, I love that about it it made it feel like it was a little bit more more realistic that you know people would come and go but for you, did you see New Mutants as having sort of some of those characters be central to New Mutants being New Mutants? Or did it feel more like a concept where you could have theoretically even rotated out the entire cast over time? Um, I think it was a concept that I could have rotated out the entire cast, but I don't think I would have. You know, for me, honestly, for me, Cannonball is one of the, um, the, the central characters. There's some, something about that kid. That he really feels like he's kind of the heart of it. I know for for a lot of people, Danny is or was. Mm-hmm. Um, may, but 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 I, I Cannonball really did it for me. Cannonball and 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 maybe Rain. Yeah, if I had to pick two new mutants that just were new mutants, I think those are probably the two I would choose. Like Mirage was great, but she always seemed to have enough of her own stuff going on that, you know, new mutants could be new mutants without her. She could be herself without new mutants. But like Sam and Rain, that was just that was their world. Yeah. As much as Sam had a huge family at home, like still new mutants was like his other family. Yes, very much so. And I, I, you know, he was such a straight arrow character in a a lot of ways. That's kind of I must be grumous gravitate toward those. Um. (laughs) I'm married to one heck. My husband's a, such a straight arrow character. <laughs> oh, man. I, I believe that. No, having read so much as writing and talked to him. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I like my heroes to be good guys. That's all. So I'm going to take it in a radically different direction, actually, okay. um, to, to heroes who are much, much more morally gray. And those of you who have been listening for a long time know that it is always Inferno in here. Yay! And... <laughs> <laughs> Because we we started we started talking about the build up to Inferno and sort of the very initial seeds of it being sown. I think more than a year before it actually happened on the podcast, and then there kept on being repercussions. So we decided, you know, it just never ends. Um, and we've talked about Doug a little bit, but the other the other character at the other character exit that 
had a huge amount of weight um, in the series was was magic during Inferno. And actually, I want to kind of bring it back to X Factor too, because you were you were writing in a lot of ways the two series that were at the absolute center of Inferno. Well, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it was it was it was you know X Men, New Mutants, and 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 uh, uh, X Factor. So yeah, I guess so. I mean, there. And, and it was, um, I, I, I guess the approach to them was actually different in a lot of ways because, I mean, what we were trying to do with Inferno, as we had done with the other crossovers, was to, to create a story that you could pretty much, you know, if you just wanted to read The New Mutants, that you could you could you could just read the New Mutants and you would have a pretty complete story. You know, you have beginnings and middles and ends, and you know you'd have a story there. Um, the X Factor arc was a little bit different. It all took place in the same giant war, but there were little skirmishes, I guess, or battles within the, diff- the, the this war. And um, so, I guess that was really what we were all trying to do. You know, me, me and Chris and, you know, anybody else who was playing in that particular little park. I, oh, I guess I guess uh, Exterminators was thrown in there, too, wasn't it? And maybe Power Pack, too, for that matter. Yeah, yeah. Now that I'm thinking of it, they were a part of it. So although I don't think I was writing Power Pack at that point. I think John Bogg was writing it. It was a really good tie-in issue, though. I do remember that. Like, it was this, like, overly hot summer in New York. And, oh, it was just wonderfully creepy. Oh yeah, he did this creepy thing with the mold growing all, all over the the kids' bathroom. It was like, yeah, it was oh. gross. Yay, John. <laughs> yes. Go Bob. Oh yeah, no, wonderful. So many wonderful times. Daredevil fought a vacuum cleaner. I remember that too. And lost. Right. <laughs> yes. And, <laughs> oh. I know a lot of people at that point were willing to play. I mean, it, we again we were doing it for to try to make sense of what had gone before but also because it was fun. Yeah. Well, and I mean, that that sense of fun mixed with terror, I think, was a lot of what made Inferno so effective. So, like, with Ilyana, you know, you have her interacting with sort of a possessed beauty parlor, and it's, it's just sort of this... It was great. It's, it's this wonderful little ghoulish bit of humor. And then you have this grand tragedy for her at the end, a tragedy that had been built up for, I mean, certainly throughout most of the course of New Mutants, but even before mm-hmm. that, even with Chris Claremont's uh, Magic miniseries... Oh, sure. Absolutely. And that's that's one of the reasons that Ilyana Rasputin is one of my very favorite X-Men characters is because she has this wonderful, wonderful arc that just culminates with Inferno. And, and you know, of course, she's been around since then. But for me, that's like of, the end of, of, of the course. arc. Yeah, and that, that amazing sort yeah. of Greek tragedy structure to it of, of just her edging closer and closer to the inevitable or the lead ends or the lead up to it. Yes, I'm glad. Oh, I, I, I'm glad it worked for you. I... It, I, she was always one of my favorites, Ileana was. Um, and, you know, it seemed the right thing to do at that particular juncture. But it was obvious to me that she had gone into limbo and had taken her younger self, her, you know, pure, pure being in quote self, and put the child back in the armor, you know, before anything happened. And, and she was ruling limbo. She was down there, you know, kicking butt and taking names. And, and and staying away from Earth, where she considers herself a danger. So, I I can't believe it took them so long to bring her back. I don't even you know I'm not even sure how she came back, or but it, it was like you know 25 years or something after she was gone, right? Like years and years, decades and decades and decades. She was always such a great character. I 
I, I can't believe, well, you know, I probably would have, have touched on her existence in limbo at some point had I stayed on the book, but I didn't. And I, it, people do what they do. And they, I'm sure whoever came on the book, other people had other characters that they probably created and wanted to use. And eventually somebody went back to magic. Um, so I want to loop back to Power Pack and that not just the Power Pack Inferno story, but this, this makes me think of it. And we got, we got a listener question about this as well. Um, whenever there was a pow- there's a Power Pack tie-in, um, Miles and I have gotten to the point where if we see the Power Pack coming up, we, we hit the, oh my God, things are about to get really dark. Oh, for heaven's sake. Like, really? they are, yeah, when they, cross over, when they cross over into the X-Men, those, well, those, yeah. those are some of the darkest and most intense X-Men stories seem to, seem to have the power pack as guests. And in that title, too, you, you, you know, you're, you're writing a book with the understanding that there are going to be younger reading, readers reading it. And you're dealing with some, some pretty serious stuff. How do you balance, you know, staying true to what you're writing and telling? I mean, stories like you, I know you didn't write the Inferno one, but just the, the for example, the Katie Power and Wolverine story. John Bob did good on that one. So good. So like that, that is that the, the mold scenario specifically is the kind of thing I have actual nightmares about. Um, thanks to a combination of that and Sean and McGuire. But <laughs> um, it's but there's there's really intense, fairly heavy stuff where if you just described it superficially as a story, you would absolutely never think of finding in, in kids media. How do you how do you handle walking that line? Um, you just write the best story you can in the most honest way you can. Keeping in mind, I don't know, a, a kid's perspective, maybe, because dark things can happen around children and children don't always know to be horrified. They have their own ways of looking at things and dealing with things. So I, I think that that's kind of what I did. I, you know, I don't think I did anything. And of course, we have the comics code to keep it. We keep us from going completely off the rails on that. But um, yeah, I, I guess, yeah, I guess we, they were so, they, they were pretty dark. Some of them. I, I guess that when the bad stuff happens, the kids still tried to do their best. They didn't sink into despair or into horror. They kept going, trying to make things better. And I think I think that's how I handled it. Yeah, bad things things happen, but you don't have to be part of the badness. And as a young reader reading those stories in New Mutants or Power Pack or the younger kids in, in X Factor, that's huge. I mean, just having that that example uh, of just hope and resilience and optimism. I think that's something you can sometimes only have in stories that are, are read by, by kids or by younger people if you then have that darkness to be a genuine obstacle and a genuine challenge for them. Like, that's where the greatest strength, I think, can come in for some of these characters is with the greatest adversity. My favorite characters are always the one that I'm torturing the most. So, yeah, I think I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, going back to characters that were being tortured, so we were talking about uh, about Ilyana and the way her story sort of culminates in Inferno, and just like uh, Chris Claremont started writing New Mutants and then you picked up after him, that was a character that he focused very heavily on before you did. While you were writing her story in New Mutants and, and you know, looking at how, how her story was going to, if not end, then at least climax there, is that something that you and Chris collaborated closely on, or did you just have your story and he gave you 
his blessing or not? How did that go? I don't, we didn't collaborate on that specifically. He would have known what I was going to do. I mean, we got copies of each, we made sure that we, that we each had copies of each other's plots and knew where things were going because we had to coordinate everything. Um, I never kill or, in this case, get rid of a character that I don't know how I'm going to bring them back. So, and and Chris, Lord knows, has mm-hmm. gotten has had characters leave and come back plenty of times. So, I mean, Chris, Chris would know that you know even even Doug could have been brought back if anyone had chosen to do that um, because he obviously had the transmode virus. So, you know, you just feed him, in theory, you feed him enough power and he's back, you know, in in a different, certainly able to transform himself into human, but also, you know, as a transmoted creature. Sort of a a bit of a parallel to Archangel's transformation, really, like the character kind of dies, but then the next time you see him, he's in this more fearsome, less human, but still very much himself form. Yes, and that's what probably would have happened to Doug eventually if I had stayed on the book. So, you know, you never know. But, um, yeah, that didn't, that, 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 that didn't happen. So, but yeah, I, I think, I think I, I do kind of like transforming characters. So. Um. As far as the direction that the book went, we've seen where you would have taken X factor if you'd stayed on it. We've seen where Chris would have taken new mutants if he'd stayed on it. And what I'm curious about is where you would have taken New Mutants after your run if you'd stayed with the book. Oh, Lord. Um, where did I even get off? I, was, I got off after Cable and mm-hmm. all that stuff. Oh, gosh, I have no idea. I don't know what I would have done. That, that would be one book where I, where I really wouldn't have known what I would have done with it. Um, so at the time, the book was going in a, in, in a sort of very new direction. We had this new leader for the New Mutants. We had Cable, this new mentor. Before, before him, of course, we had a period where they were with X-Factor briefly and a, period, a long period before that with the New Mutants being mentored by Magneto. I know, from what I understand, um, Cable was brought on in part because that was suggested by, by editorial. During that period when the New Mutants were kind of on their own, is that a direction you think... Uh, works for them better or do you think having a new mentor was indeed the way to go there i think well obviously cable turned out to be very popular so probably that was <laughs> the way to go commercially and having them on their own maybe would have been a little bit too much like power pack i mean i find it okay i find it interesting um to have them on their own simply because when i was a child and pretended i didn't pretend and, and, and honestly, for me, I think, you know, writing comics, writing power pack, writing whatever is almost like being a child pretending. Um, I my my games that I had played with my friends were always self-directed. We did not pretend that there was a teacher or anybody bossing us. We pretended we had total control and what we have what, what we wanted happened. So um, I kind of think that might be more my natural inclination Obviously, that's what Power Pack did. I mean, they didn't even want to tell their parents that they had powers. So, um, I, I, you know, I might have gone that way, but having a mentor, I can understand that that because of the whole, you know, Professor X thing and and and, and the fact that they're supposed to be in students at a school, probably um, <laughs> having a, a teacher, a, a leader is probably a good thing, an adult leader, I suppose. I think they would have been perfectly fine mm-hmm. on their own. At least for a while. Yeah, I mean, at that point, 
all the things they'd been through, they had definitely developed some skills. They had. So we are a ways in. Um, do you want to, uh, I've been sort of trying to pepper listener questions through a little bit, but do you want to knock out a handful, to, a handful now? That sounds good to me, Wheezy. Sounds, oh sure, of course. All right. Um, so there have been a lot of, oh my God, I love your stuff that are just sent in like that, which I, are not questions, but I am passing them on on mass. Um, oh, that's very sweet. Thank you, everyone who wrote that. So David Loras um, um, asks, when you realized you had something really special going on with Claremont, Cochran, Byrne, and the other collaborators, and whether and how you approached the books differently as an editor after it became clear that you really had lightning in a bottle? Oh, gosh. I From the minute I read my first X-Men comic, I knew there was lightning in a bottle. You know, between... Um, uh, okay, this is how I, I was handed the X Men early. We covered this earlier. I was handed the X Men uh, at a, a, a very vital juncture, and I had read X Men comics, but I hadn't read the whole series just because I, you know, I was busy doing my own work. And you, sometimes when you're doing your own work, you don't always read other people's work as much as you should. So I said, well, if I'm going to be taking over the X Men, I have to go back and I have to understand who they are. Marvel used to bind the X-Men comics into collections, so I, which editors were then allowed to take out. So, you know, it was in the days before the internet. We couldn't just look things up. We had to actually. So I, would, I took this giant stack of X-Men comics in, bound in, in these, these, these black books home with me um, to read. I, I got into my apartment there was I had a I, I had a raging headache for some reason, and there was a reception or something going on in the courtyard behind my apartment with loud music playing. So I said, "Well, I've got to read this stuff. I might as well sit down and do it." And I sat down, and the world went away. My headache went away. The noise went away. I fell into that universe. So it was not, I had nothing to do with creating the lightning. I knew from that experience that the lightning was there, you know, through Dave Cochran, through John Byrne. Um, it was, it was just, it was magic. You know, I was just scared I was going to screw it up. So then I get the X-Men, I'm, I'm, I've got, you know, the death of Phoenix, and then we've got, um, Oh, 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 what is it? What was it called? Oh, my God, everybody died. Oh, Days of Future Past. Yes, bless you, bless you, bless you. With Days of Future, okay. So I, I, I have, I, I was through Days of Future Past, and then after, soon, and John Byrne calls up and he says, I, I, I'm, going, I'm getting off the book. And John had been so essential to the book for a long time that I thought, oh, God, I've killed the X-Men. He, he, <laughs> he, he's he's leaving and it will all you know go down the drain oh woe is me woe is me and but it didn't because you know because there was chris and there was dave cockram and paul and john romita jr i mean we, we had some some other brilliant artists who took over and it really worked out really well but um yeah and so i i knew that when there was lightning and i my fear was that i would do something that would mess it up and honestly, I, I do for me that the the, the catalyst, the, the important element there was Chris. I mean, not not just because he was the connector, but because he was just such a prolific talent. 
Yeah, I mean, God, just looking at all the stuff of his we've we've covered, like, there's nobody like Chris Claremont. And I mean, X-Men would not be X-Men without Chris Claremont. Comics would not be comics without Chris Claremont. Like, what do you even say? You know, I mean, we've certainly tried. We've had almost 200 episodes in which we largely have talked about it. But but wow. I, I agree. Absolutely. So the lightning in the bottle was Chris. Luckily, I didn't mess it up. <laughs> You had a lot of lightning of your own you added, though, God. I mean, the the highlight, like I said, I'm, I'm an 80s X-Men guy, first and foremost. And so much of that was you and Chris each doing your own books and having them all interact, like have their own identities, but interact in ways that made yeah. sense. And it was just this wonderful little X ecosystem for so many years. And I mean, I just wanted to live there. Well, well good. I'm glad because we were having fun. And we, like I said, I really wanted my readers to enjoy being there too and I, I think the characters themselves were generally speaking pretty interesting people that you you wanted to spend time with and I think that's essential in, in, in making a book successful absolutely and actually speaking of of characters or just of projects we had another question uh from icon uk he was wondering if there is a title or a character that sort of always felt like the one that got away to you like something that you would have loved to have done and just didn't haven't had the chance to yet Okay, Chris always he had Chris had this giant note, all these notebook notes on everything, and he would write everything down. And then if he couldn't think of some of a story, he would go back and look at his notes, and there would be, you know, two million ideas. His 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 dangling plot threads that the readers used to hate, they were there so he could pick them up and, you know, weave wonderful stories out of. Um, I <laughs> I never I didn't write things down in that same way. So I you know thirty years later I don't remember. Um, I, I, I'm sure that there were things that I would have liked to have done that I didn't, but I think that, you know, on, on X Factor, I did get to go back and I got to do X Factor forever and kind of got, you know, got apocalypse, you know, and I, I, he was, he was set at that point, the way that I had envisioned him. And, um, you know, so I, I was lucky there, but I don't know. I don't, there was not, I'm sure there was some, I'm sure there's tons of stuff I would have done that I just can't think of right now. So Daniel <laughs> would like to know whether you read current comics and if so, what your favorite, what your current favorites are. Oh, I actually don't. I read books mostly. Um, you know, every once in a while, usually the comics that I read have to do with work that I'm, things that I've been assigned to work on. And I'm doing a whole lot of work for DC right now, much of which I'm not even allowed to say that I'm doing it for DC. So I can't even tell you what it is. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it, it, so that my reading actually at this point is more research than it is for fun anymore. Um, there's some really nice comics out there though. And, and some of them are some of the modern stuff that isn't superhero stuff is really, really interesting. That's one thing I've really enjoyed is just seeing with both indie comics and some of the traditional superhero publishers branching out a little bit more, just the industry making it clearer and clearer to its readers that comics is a medium. It's not just one genre. As much as superheroes are certainly my favorite genre, like I just love seeing all the different directions that that the industry and the medium are, are going. Like, I mean, it's it's visuals and it's text and you can do so much with that. Yes, 
absolutely. Um, it, it, anything from entertainment to education, it's comics are really there. Just it, it, they're they're a perfect tool. Another question that Daniel had, he was wondering if we had the ability, I guess all three of us, to snap our fingers and instantly make one change to the comics industry. What would it be and why? Um, I would I would make comics less top-heavy. I would go back to the olden days where creators were given a book for a while and were allowed to make their own way with stories rather than having so many crossovers where, 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 where certain events are mandated. Because I think that, I think one of the problems with difficulties with comics right now is that readers, they, they get on and they're reading along and they're happy. And then all of a sudden there's a crossover event where they're expected to buy 15 comics to even know what's going on by the next issue uh, that it, I think you lose readers that way. And I think you lose fun. So that's what I would do. I don't know that it's a commercial approach, but I think it would make for more interesting stories. Yeah, you know, that's actually, I, I think I might agree with you there. I mean, I think about the books I love. I think about the books that I've really sunk my teeth in. And some of them are just great little short runs that have stories in between events or whatever. But really, it's it's a lot of those longer term ones, a lot of the ones where you, you just get to know the characters and the setting and also the creative team's style. And it just feels like a world you can you can spend some time in. It's, it's this sort of comforting, empowering experience you get to have. You get invested in the characters. You identify with them. You're, they're, they become like your friends. And I think that it, there again, you do want to spend exactly. time with them. And I think that, I don't know, it seems to me that that may be missing in a lot of modern comics, but I may be wrong about that. <laughs> I guess I guess there are plenty of <laughs> publishers who think that, um, that, that that's not the way to go. I mean, they keep, they keep, deleting entire universes like all of a sudden you know things that happened in events that happened suddenly no longer exist i find it very confusing but maybe that's just me i'm wrestling this with this one this this feels like trying to figure out how to phrase a wish spell in a DD campaign um that w one change and i've got it narrowed down to two is that okay you can you got you control the horizontal all right so so my two, my, my two between which I am torn are get significant diversity at positions of executive decision and hiring mm, power. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And figure out how to make the, and make the direct market somehow functional. Oh, man, that is a, that's a big wish right there. I don't know, I don't know how you do it. <laughs> But I would, I would you know, fix the direct market. I know, how you, I know how, you, how you do the first one. The first one feels very achievable. I, I think the first one is happening. I have to say that at least at DC. It's starting to, but if I get to snap my fingers, I'd like to see it all happen at once. Well, there you go. I have to, I have to say at DC, I'm working with some very, uh, editors who would, you would find appropriate. <laughs> I, you know, what can I say? I can't even say who I'm working with. Um, but I think I, I, I can see that happening at DC. 
And I think that it will, I don't know about Marvel because I don't really have a lot of, I don't do stuff with him much anymore. But um, the DC, I think DC is moving in that direction. For, for your first one, I don't know about the direct market. What, what, the direct market is doing some weird stuff. The direct market's always been doing weird stuff, and it's it's gotten weirder and weirder. And we've we've talked a little bit about how it works and the ways that it's it's broken. But yeah, um, I I I don't know how much structural systemic change is going to be possible with it working the way it is because it's this this amazing sort of Ouroboros of a thing between publishers and distributors and retailers and readers. Um, what, how would you like to see it? Um, what would you what, what if, if your dream direct market? How how would that function? I mean, what do you want to have happen? I'd like to see a more flexible version of it. Part of the problem with the direct market as it stands currently is that it's highly, highly dependent on pre-orders, which means because because comics that comics retailers buy are non-returnable. So actually, oh no, the the first thing I would do if 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 I were choosing steps for this, I think you'd have you'd have to take take out Diamond's distribution monopoly. That that would have to be a starting point. Um, I think that that's actually good. Monopolies are never good for one thing. Yeah, and it's it's such such a limiting factor on both the publisher and retailer end. Um, otherwise, the pre the, the pre order and, and that would that would actually fix a lot of the or or potentially fix a lot of things like the pre order thing where if you want to tr- try a new comic, you need to know several months before it's actually going to hit the shelves. Not only that it's going to happen, but that you want to try it and where the survival series are solicited so far ahead of time that survival of ongoing series depends on pre orders. When a huge segment of fans reads them in digital or trade, and it's yeah, it's it's just. It's extremely unwieldy in, in ways that makes make any kind of substantive change very, very, very difficult. So I, uh, the, the, the reading, reading comics digitally, I think, is actually great. I like reading comics digitally. Mm-hmm. But the, the problem with that is, is, is being able to monetize them. Um, because once something's out there in digital... It gets lifted, and a lot of people are reading it for free, and that makes it that makes it hard on the publishers and hard for the creators too. Or happened with scans too. And what what people have found over and over in the you know the iTunes model is that if you make it easier for people to buy a thing than to track it track it down illegally, they'll buy. It. I think that they will. I agree with that. And also, I I would I think that if it's the, the comics are very expensive these days. And it would be, I, I would like to see digital comics be less expensive so that mm-hmm. um, so that people who maybe want to read them but can't afford to pay, you know, $4 a month for eight comics or whatever can actually get them a little bit cheaper and get hooked on them. And then they can, when they, when they get rich, they can get hard copies. And I don't know. I like digital because you don't have to store them. I've got, I have a husband who is... Um, a book collector fiend. We've got bookshelves on every everything except the bathrooms, and we have baskets full of books in the bathrooms. So um, <laughs> I, I always think digital is really good because you don't have to put them anywhere. Totally agree. I've I've become a convert since we started doing the podcast big time. It's just there's this tablet and, and comics. They're a little bit smaller, but they look great. Yeah. They're so clear. I love it. I will go. I will go full digital when there is a digital platform that consistently preserves two page spreads. Oh, right. That's that is fair. There I is think that. that is a completely fair, <laughs> fair, fair, fair ra- rationalization. Um, but yeah, I, I I I agree that those are all important things that uh, that that. 
that it would be on a good wish list. So I think that's through pretty much everything. Weezy, thank you again so much for coming on the show. And thank you for years of fantastic comics um, in the X-Men and beyond. Oh, it was my pleasure. It was my pleasure giving you comics and my pleasure being on your show. I love it. Well, you are welcome back absolutely anytime. Absolutely. Well, thank you. I would, I'll be glad anytime you ask me, I'll be glad to talk to you now that I know how to work it. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So I know you mentioned you're working on a number of secret projects. Are there any places that people can uh, check out your current work um, online or otherwise, or is it all top secret right now? Yeah, or look for those announcements. Yeah, some of the comics, two of, two of them, oh dear. One of one of them, I'm allowed to say that there is a DC project that will, oh dear, have some video implications, I guess. That's kind of what I'm allowed to say on that, which is bizarre. Um, huh. Whatever that means. Um, I can't, I don't, whatever. Uh, and and, and uh, let's see, another... I can I can say that I'm working I'm doing a science fiction mini series for Sandy Carpenter for Storm King. Oh, nice! And I think you guys would like it if you liked the the, the X Factor off in outer space. I I and and yeah, I, I just think I think you'd get a kick out of it. I think you would find it amusing. Okay, yeah, definitely checking that out. That sounds amazing. So I, I think she's announcing, I, I, I was allowed to, to say that, but I think she's making an announcement at the New York convention this year, maybe, officially announcing it. Uh, well, that is that is super exciting. And your, your other projects for DC, I'm excited to check out as well. But, but yeah, like Jay said, just thank you for all of the amazing work you put out there. Like we've gotten so much pleasure both reading it, you know, when we were younger and now doing this podcast about it and really getting to, to sink our teeth into it. It's just, it's been a delight. It continues to be a delight. Well, well, thanks you very much for having me. I, I am delighted you invited me onto your podcast. Absolutely. I will take care, Weezy. Hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye. So we just talked to Louise Simonson, and that was amazing. She's so great. Right? Can we just invite her on as the third host? I mean, I I feel good about that. Yeah, I'm totally into it. Anyway, point being, I'm really glad we were able to make that work. I mean, like... For a milestone episode, I think talking to the other person that made X-Men what it is after talking to Chris Claremont. It was really formative, yeah. Yeah, oh, so cool. Now we just have to figure out what to do for 300. Oh, well, thankfully we have a long time to figure it out. And a lot of amazing creators out there, it's true. Yeah, yeah, I I think I've I've got a whole list, but I I feel like those are sort of the big two. Yup. So what what do we do with the rest of this episode? I feel like it's, it's 200. Should we be doing some kind of retrospective? That was the almost four years that was? Yeah, I mean, it's been, I know we talked about this some on the show, but this podcast has been the constant in our lives through a hell of a lot of change um, for both us as individuals and us as as a pair of humans. And having that, having that just connection to things we love and a thing we can continue to work on together throughout that, that's been incredible. Yeah, also just seeing the community that's built up around it. We talk about that a lot. But it's so neat. Like, there are some of you we've literally kind of gotten to watch grow up with the show. Um, and a ton of people who we've seen, who, who we first got to know as listeners, who've gone on to start their own podcasts, to do their own creative work. That's been so amazing. Like, seeing this, this and seeing and being part of this amazing community galvanized by really liking stuff and really liking to share that. 
Exactly. I mean, I know enthusiasm is sort of like podcast Miles' thing, but it's Miles Miles' thing just as much. And honestly, podcast Miles and Miles Miles are, are pretty damn similar. And so just getting to live in that, getting to dive into that as the world becomes kind of scary sometimes, as, you know, our personal lives have their various challenges that they have. It's just this wonderful oasis of, of joy and engagement. And being able to jump into salient and industry salient current arguments with the perspective that having worked on this and done this and reading 60 years of comics very closely and very detailedly gives us has been has been a lot of fun too. I um, having having conversations with people who feel that comics should go back to being apolitical like they were, you know, when God Loves Man Kills was coming out. It's always an experience. I'm just saying Superman was a socialist agitator back in the day and that was awesome. Okay, if you don't know how we feel about this by now because you're just coming in on this episode, I'd recommend going back and listening to the Rose City, This is the Mutant Revolution episode, where we talk (laughs) very candidly about how we feel about that. But in general, I mean, comics are a political medium. Art is political, fundamentally. What you do and don't choose to include or discuss is a political choice, whether or not it involves the inclusion or omission of overt politics on a page. And as G. Willow Wilson so beautifully put it, any genre in which you explicitly label heroes and villains fundamentally comes with political and ethical ramifications. Yeah. God, Willow's amazing. I mean, her work is amazing and she's amazing. God, we have, I'm, I'm trying to think through thinking about all the stuff we've got done on the show. And I think the, the people it's put us in touch with, then the questions we've gotten the chance to ask from the sources is there. I have so many favorite things. It's one of them though. I know, right? Um, I mean, this has just been a dream project. We started this four years and change ago. And I, I remember we had the conversation that if we had 50 people who weren't our moms listening to the show, it would be a success. And um, now we have more and it still blows me away sometimes. Yeah, there are a lot of you. There are that, that um, people want to listen to us just make dick jokes about, <laughs> well, Nicolas Cage most recently, but also the X-Men in general. How did that happen? It's it's really an honor, and it's also really humbling. Well, I think it comes down to the premise of the show. And if I have learned one thing from this podcast over the last few, four years, it's that a lot of people are very confused by the X-Men. <laughs> totally legit. Well, that's 200 down. Uh, what do you say? 200 more? Sound good? Yeah, I'm up for it if you are. Totally into it. Let's do this. All right. But first, as always... You've got questions. And and we went through the questions you had for, for Wheezy or for us and Wheezy together, but we've got a handful more that are, are just about um, the show, and we thought this would might, might be a good time to talk about them because we usually just do questions about the X-Men, so or often. So let's see, what have we got? We Are In It asks on Tumblr, Now that you've reached 200 episodes, how long do you imagine you can keep this up? 500 episodes? 1,000 episodes? 10,000 episodes? <laughs> Um, I love what you do. Thank you. But the amount of weekly work that must go into these blows me away. Do you consider taking breaks or doing seasons to keep from burning out? That is an excellent question. And uh, like we apparently just confirmed, we're totally in it for at least a, a long while. I mean, when we started doing this show and chose a weekly format, we had no idea what we were getting into. Neither of us was really much of a regular podcast listener. We just figured that seemed reasonable. And it's, um, it's a lot. It's definitely a lot. But at the same time, being able to come back to this this frequently, it's really cool. As for breaks, I mean, it would certainly make things easier, and we do occasionally take a week off. But or when we, we took a few, we took a, a couple of months off this past summer when I was relocating. 
Well, we certainly did the hiatus, yeah. Yeah, which is a whole other thing. But for me, I really enjoy being able to come out with a new show damn near every week. It's it's become a, a really fun, engaging part of my life, even if it's indeed a lot of work. That said, it's actually funny that you brought this up now because we are actually going to be taking next week off. But that is just a week, and we'll be back right after. And at this point, I feel like we have such a terrific network of friends and creators and fellow podcasters that it's pretty easy with planning for one of us to take a week off at any given time um, that we need to. Because we, we've got this, this great store of emergency backup hosts. <laughs> right. As far as how long we're going to keep going, um, I'm so reluctant. I, f- I feel like saying a number is jinxing it. When we started this, there were podcasts that were going into their, you know, 100th or 200th or 300th episode. And I was flabbergasted that podcasts lasted that long. If you'd asked me at 100, if we'd hit 200, I would have told you, ah, maybe. And I feel like that's kind of where I still am going out. It's still fun to do. It's still something we can do. It's still something there's an audience for. And I think as long as those are the case, we'll keep going. Sounds good to me. Optimistic audience asked us, I know Miles has talked about his changing perspective on the 90s during the review. After 200 episodes, I have to ask, what has changed about your perspectives on the X-Men, Marvel, or comics in general because of your work with this show? So um, I have always been aware of and at peripheries of fandom. And I've always been a fan, but very rarely parts of organized fandom. And that limited my contact with sort of specific fandoms. And what working on this did, not only through our audience, but through looking at the history of the books, looking at the history of of reader engagement with them, looking at the history of the creators on them, is that it really made me step back and look at how deeply, deeply invested X-Men fans are and how important this world and these series are to the to those fans and and really why. And this is I, I I can probably say this, I should probably double check, but um I just finished an essay for the catalog for the big Marvel exhibit at the Museum of Popular Culture on the mutant web metaphor and its sort of limits and 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 benefits and, and why it matters so much and why the X-Men matter so much to me. And listening just to the the incredible range of answers to those questions and the incredible passion that goes with that range and just how how profoundly, profoundly important these characters and these comics and, and in movies and cartoons and all of that have been to such a tremendously wide range of people for so long. Like I knew in theory, but doing the show has brought that home in ways that I, I don't think I ever quite could have wrapped my head around before. Yeah, I mean, I started my my X-Men life as just somebody who would read the comics, both old and at the time new, and then talk to my friends about it on the playground. And getting to be a part of that that larger world, it's it's been amazing. And I, I just didn't know how many people cared so much about X-Men and also about what X-Men means. And that's been a gradual, extremely positive surprise. Yeah, so let's see. Um... Eric Gibson would like to know, favorite episode of X-Men the Animated Series? 
Okay, so I don't remember the name of it, but it's the one where um, Apocalypse shows up on Muir Island, and, like, it's... I, I don't think it's the episode where Angel gets turned into Archangel. I, that might be the one after this. But at one point, the characters are in a bar, like, either in Scotland or on Muir Island specifically, and fucking Technet is in there for no goddamn reason. <laughs> They're just in the bar, hanging out, somehow not smashing anything. And between that and Apocalypse showing up and the Angel-Archangel thing, like, that was so many of my favorite comics things when I was a kid all crammed randomly inexplicably into one episode that I had to just be in love with it. It was so good. Oh, man. Um, if we're going by extras, it's the one where the two bodybuilders walk by with the balloon. I don't remember which episode it is, but that, that's my favorite background moment. Um, actual episode, I really dig the Warlock one. It's very, very different from the one in comics, and I think it's a good example of adaptation that takes something in a different and interesting direction that was cool i'll also throw i will throw in my least favorite for free which is jubilee's fairy tale that episode is terrible it's so bad i wanted to like it oh i i it it, it is punishment television nicholas Schusta uh emailed us to ask i get the impression from your earliest episodes that you originally envisioned a podcast format different from the approach you've mostly ended up using where you look closely at each issue of the x books in more or less publication order how did you originally expect the podcast would work? Were there plans you abandoned when you settled on the current format? So I can't speak for both of us, but I can say that the planning that went into it early on, um, we really never anticipated it lasting this long. Right? We just figured we'd talk about some things generally and then eventually get bored. We weren't sure how we were going to do it originally. Um, I think our, our plan was to keep it to, to sometimes focus on specific stories or arcs, to sometimes focus on specific characters. I think I envisioned us going through material faster than we have, which we did at first, um, but it's gotten, there's so much, there's so much. Like continuity builds exponentially. Well, and I also like that we've moved to more of a, a close reading format, getting to sink our teeth into some of the details, some of the dialogue, some of the way the art is done to convey a certain thing. That's fun. I mean, yeah, it slows us way down, and who knows when we'll even get to milestone A, B, or C in this show. <laughs> but at the same time, like it, it's almost like we get to go through our own rereading of the comic on the air in some ways. Not that we're trying to sum it up. If we're just uh, summarizing the issues we're covering, we have failed as podcasters. But, you know, it's fun going through some of the details. Yeah, no, we are not Mayor LaGuardia reading you the funnies. But, um, <laughs> was that LaGuardia? It was someone. It was, it was some New York mayor. Anyway, <laughs> we did that on the radio. I might just be thinking LaGuardia because of the airport. But, yeah, yeah, um, I think, yeah, I think from the beginning we went in with a vision of this that was fairly flexible. One thing that hasn't changed that I feel like we nailed kind of from the start was is our prep format using using the outlines the way we do. Mm -hmm. Like we, we latched onto that really early and it's a really flexible way to plan episodes and work and it gives us a lot of space to go in whatever direction we want to. Um, and I think I think that's part of part of why it's been able to metamorphose in the way that it has in response to the material and in response to what we felt like doing at any given point. Agreed. And this is from Tereshkova2001 on Tumblr, which is, what are we most proud of about the podcast? I mean, for me, the community that's built around it, hands down, that's been unexpected and amazing to see develop. Like, we were just talking about the community around comics and X-Men in general, but having a community around the podcast, seeing, like, friendships form around the show, being able to interact with people and hear what's special and meaningful to them about the stuff we talk about, 
it's awesome. I mean, the internet is a really scary place. There's a reason I'm I'm barely on it aside from the podcast. And I feel like we've been able to be part of one of the best little facets of the whole internet. Well, and proof of concept for what it can be. I think for me, the answer to that is, is the community is part of it. But even more, it's the stuff that's grown and branched out of this. Um, Xavier Files, who's a, a writer and podcaster, um, and presumably also keeping track of how to kill all of the X-Men at any given time, um, asked on, on Twitter a couple days ago for just shout outs from podcasts who had started or been inspired to, inspired to start because they'd been our listeners. And that was something I'd never really thought about. Yeah. And the responses just completely blew me away. And we've heard from people who've said, you know, hearing this in the discussion led me to start making this comic. We've had these, these amazing correspondences. We've met you at, at conventions. And you have made so much amazing, cool stuff and learned so much and done so much. And having been even a step in that process feels really amazing. My smart-ass answer to this question is to have it be absolute irrevocable canon that Spider-Man taught the Beyonder to poop. That's right. And the fact that now people know who Peter Corbeau is again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, Al Ewing is the answer. But um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, no, it's it's been really amazing getting to see that and just just even be be along for the ride and, and also to see you guys make friends and like do stuff together and collaborate. It's so cool. Um, all of that said, I guess a little more personally, I'm really proud that we've kept this show going for as long as we have through some pretty impressive, challenging stuff in our lives. I mean, Oh shit. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's been so special and important to me. And like, Jay, dude, I mean, you and I, we've had so many things change and we're still connecting through this podcast and that's so fucking important to me and I'm, I'm, I'm just fucking blissful that we're making it work. Yeah, I guess if we keep up the Scott and Jean metaphor, this is, this is the alternate universe where, where she didn't die and like amical divisions of responsibilities happened. Yay for that alternate universe! <laughs> There's gotta be one out there somewhere. <laughs> Internet high five, Jay. Yay! Awkward high five and FaceTime, which we're also in, so we can gesture at each other through video because we're really bad at doing this audio only. <laughs> um, Listeners, insert your own high five sound here. Yeah. Oh God, this has been this is so cool. So there's what we're proudest of, and then there's what we're thankful for, which is a huge amount on this. Now, this is usually where we thank a couple specific patrons, um, but I think it being the 200th episode, we should probably move it a lot broader than that. So first and foremost, and most directly, thank you so much to our guest today, Louise Simonson, for, for coming on and for the years of fantastic comics you gave us and for being a delight every time we've spoken with you. And a gigantic infinite from the very depths of our mutant hearts. Thank you to everybody who listens to this show. Whether it's something that you interact with through social media, or just tell all your friends about and share, or support us on Patreon so we can keep doing it, or if you just listen to it every once in a while, whatever. I mean, the fact that we're making this thing about stuff that we love and people listen to it, that's incredibly gratifying. Thank you all. Yeah, thank you all so much. By the same token, um, we, we get occasional messages saying from folks, I'm sorry, I can't support you on Patreon. And no, it's cool. It's cool. You are all our listeners and we love you all equally. 
Um, we are we are very 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 grateful to our patrons for for keeping the lights on and the 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 Zencaster running. We are really happy to have all of you here. So thank you, all of you. And thanks also to all the people that make this show work. I mean, we put in the content, but yeah. it would sound like garbage yeah. without our producer, Matt Hunter. Matt, you were amazing, and we are so lucky to have you. Thank you all to everybody who's produced this show before. I mean, from Bobby Roberts, who helped us get off the ground, to Kyle Young, who worked with us for ages, to Kurt Lloyd, who helped us through the long-distance transition. Like, you've all made this show what it is. Thank you so much. Yeah, and I especially want to call out to Bobby because he was our first producer. And frankly, if it hadn't been for his help and encouragement, this show wouldn't have happened. It would not have started. We would not have had the confidence to dive into it the way we did. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it is. He is, he is, he is its weird third parent. Um, speaking of, of weird third parents and folks who have been, who have stuck with us through actually every single producer, the, the longest mainstay on the show other than the two of us is our illustrator, David Wynn. Oh, Yeah who who gives who who provides those fantastic fantastic illustrations and some of our favorite designs um who has been just a pleasure to work with and who is and one of my favorite parts of every week is 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 seeing what this week's going to look like and really just thanks to everybody who's helped us make this show for 200 episodes and who's going to help us make this show for who the hell knows how many more Thank you so much to the friends, to the family, to the partners who have supported and helped and tolerated our nonsense, to um, Katie Proctor our, our and, and Books with Pictures, which even this far away is our hometown comic shop, even if we're not filming there anymore, um, to all of the conventions that have hosted us, all of the guests who've come on, all of the emergency substitute um, co-hosts, everyone who's lent their voice or their skills or their time to the show and also to everyone who's written and made the books we're talking about it, we would not be here without you. <laughs> Hell yeah. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. We'll be taking next week off to rest on our laurels and catch our breath. But we'll be back on June 17th with episode 201. As the X-Men take the fight to the Mojoverse. Mojoverse.